Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Panel Beater and uh, I'm joined in the studio by my very learned colleague, <laughs> Dr. Neo. Good morning, Dr. Neo. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Melbourne. Good morning, Melbourne. Um, how are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm well. I'm um, I'm fully into the the full time working life um, as a very very baby doctor, and it's all coming along. <laughs> yeah. Um, everyone uh, still in good shape um, as that you uh, encountered since the last month we saw you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Um, hello to all my patients out there. Yeah. Um, no, no. It's been it's been very good. It's been um, you know a very steep learning curve over the past few months, and a um, you know all of your expectations get thrown out the window and replaced yeah. with new expectations. And as you as you move through through the year, it's all. Uh, quite dynamic and quite it's been quite fun though yeah um which that's good been, to hear which has been good how, um, how routine are your days at the moment oh very routine um you know you get into a quite a quite a strict pattern um yep. which is nice and you get to know you get to try and expect what you'd what you'd go through on a day-to-day basis but uh there's always a few curveballs in there as yeah. you'd expect yeah really um you know sick and deteriorating patients or uh, uh, things that get you know different bosses that like different different things different ways. Sure. Um, are they? Are, are you getting much grief? I mean, we here we we being um, those of us who haven't gone through what you're going through. Mm. Um, we hear horror stories about what it's like to be a young doctor and and um, things ranging from just the long hours and just mm. the general stress of being a young doctor mm. through to things like. Bullying and intimidation, and you know the old guard trying to, mm. you know, keep you on your toes. Are you experiencing all of that? Ah, uh, look, it's from 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 what I understand, things, the conditions currently are probably the best that they've ever been. So I can't I can't really right. complain. Yeah. Uh, as you'd expect with with any job, there's a lot of um, different stresses and different uh, environmental issues that play in the day to day practice and. I have been very lucky to experience very limited uh, bullying or or harassment, yeah. or, but I think that comes from a, a privileged position as uh, well. You know, yeah. I am what uh, the old guard expect of a doctor. I am a uh, white okay. male. Oh, uh, uh, I see what you're saying. So yeah. I don't think I can speak that <laughs> right. um, well to everyone's experience of yeah, what it is to yeah. be a doctor in the modern day. Yeah, fair call and a good point. Um, we're not three people uh, this week. No. We're, we're missing Dr. Sharma. No, Dr. Sharma isn't uh, sitting next to us just being uncharacteristically quiet. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he's, ladies and gentlemen, he's been sent back to the front line, mm. to, the, to the COVID front line. Mm. So he's doing the good work. He's doing the good work. Um, and um, it's a real shame that he can't be, be with us today. Um, speaking of today and what we've got coming up, um, we've got a fabulous special guest, mm. um, Dr. Alex Wodak. Many listeners will be very familiar with his work, a, a, a long-time public voice on um, 
you know, discussions around drugs in the community from mm. a few different angles. Mm. Um, uh, and we'll be talking to him about his current work um, and, and his work over a long period of time um, very shortly. And I've got um, some research that's um, kind of topical and I've been um, talking with my, um, my students about, especially my first year undergrad students. And there's been some research published about students' attitudes to drinking mm. um, as they arrive at university, so very specifically mm. um, first-year students. And it's, I won't say too much right now, but it's very interesting. There's a couple of things that come to the surface, mm. um, a couple of things that aren't surprising about, um, you know, 18-year-olds drinking. No, we, we wouldn't know anything about that. No, would no. We? But there, are, there is nevertheless, I think, some shift going on, and I'm really looking forward to um, mm. talking about that. Um, we might even be able to hear from... Um, uh, Dr. Wodak, um, in that regard. Yeah, I'm sure he'd have a fascinating point of view on that. Hey, it's um, April Amnesty, Dr. Neo, mm. um, and we want to draw our listeners' attention to April Amnesty. Of course, long-term listeners very familiar with the Radiothon that happens uh, each August. April Amnesty is an opportunity if you've been, um, if, if you haven't had a subscription um, or a donation in with us, you've felt like you wanted to, um, April offers you a time to do that. Mm. And um, it's a low-key version of Radiothon, so we're not going to be banging on about it other than to say that anything that you can do to help us at the moment would be more than welcome. Um, there's no secret that uh, times are tough for a lot of mm. people, um, a lot of businesses that sponsor, um, you know, promote events uh, via via Triple R needing some support, um, Triple R itself needing support, and we but we recognise a lot of listeners doing it tough. If you can, um, um, subscribe to Triple R or, or, or make a small donation. There's plenty of prizes on the run, um, really fabulous uh, prizes. Um, and uh, and I'm looking forward to getting some um, radiotherapy listeners, some of that uh, that goodness. Yeah, I'm just looking at all the prizes now and there's some absolutely amazing ones. Some crackers, yeah, yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We are very delighted to have um, a special guest, uh, Dr. Alex Wodak, uh, join us on the phone. Um, Dr. Wodak will be known to many of our listeners uh, from his um, public voice on a wide ranging of issues associated with drugs in the community. Um, Dr. Alex Wodak, by way of background, is a physician. Um, he was director of the Alcohol and Drug Service at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney for a, a very long period of time, 82 to 2012. Um, has since retired, but still very, very active in this space. Uh, major um, interests have included over time uh, prevention of HIV among young people who inject drugs, prevention of alcohol problems, and um, uh, more pointedly for our discussion today, drug policy reform. Dr. Wodak uh, is president of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation and was president of the International Harm Reduction Association. He helped establish the first needle syringe program and the first supervised injecting centre in Australia when both were pre-legal and often works in developing countries on HIV control um, among people who inject drugs. Dr Wodak uh, helped um, establish the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, uh, the Australian Society of HIV Medicine and the New South Wales User AIDS Association. All in all, we're talking to a very distinguished uh, contributor to the discussion around drugs in Australia and elsewhere. Dr. Wodak, we have you on the phone. Welcome to Radiotherapy and Triple R. 
Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. It's really, it's really wonderful to have you. And um, you know, that, that's that's quite a background you have there, and and it talks to a great deal of um, expertise over a long period of time. We'll we'll get to a discussion about where we're currently at, but perhaps some um, by way of uh, reflection. You could maybe tell us uh, a potted history about how, where we've come from uh, over your time uh, on this topic and, um, and bring us to today. Well, I got involved in this area just as the HIV epidemic was exploding. Uh, first um, recognised on June the 5th, 1981, that was when the announcement was made. We were living in London at the time and I remember reading a little paragraph and in the newspaper, but we came back to Australia um, beginning of July 82, that's when I started working at St Vincent's, and the epidemic was just dominating everything, Mm. a bit like COVID is today, uh, except it was very much more mysterious, um, and every few days there'd be some new fragment of information about um, this new epidemic. Um, and it took a while to work out that it was an infection, it wasn't a chemical, uh, mm. and it took a while to work out all the facets of the epidemic. And things actually moved very, very quickly. And we were fortunate in Australia at that time that we had a bipartisan approach to this crisis. Um, and Andrew Peacock, who just died, was the leader of the opposition. And Bob Hawke was the Prime Minister, and the two of them decided that this would be handled apolitically. And mm. Peter Bowman and Neil Blewett, the uh, health minister and shadow health minister at the time, had a famous cup of tea where they decided um, that they would be pragmatic rather than political. And that's, that's the, the time that I was really getting involved in this area. And on April the 2nd, 1985, um, the, the then Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, and the six state premiers and the Chief Minister of Northern Territory met in Canberra uh, to have a one-day-long session where they would uh, decide Australia's future drug policy, and they agreed, all eight leaders, ACT wasn't self-governing yet, uh, all eight leaders of our eight governments at that time uh, agreed that um, that harm minimisation would be Australia's official national drug policy, and that's that was enormously helpful for the work that I was um, starting to do. Uh, uh, there was tremendous resistance to methadone programs, to needle syringe programs, later to. Uh, drug consumption rooms like the medically supervised injecting centre in King's Cross and mm. later one in North Richmond, Melbourne. Dr. Wodak, just, just if I could just um, capture that moment for a second. So the the concept of harm um, minimalisation uh, came to fruition there at that point. In other words, was there a vacuum in terms of the public discussion or, you know, or the policy discussion at that time? Otherwise? Well, the policy discussion had been dominated uh, in Australia for, over, for almost 100 years um, um, by the idea that if there was a drug you didn't like, you prohibited it. Right. Uh, we forget that um, we had alcohol prohibition in Australia for over a century. Yeah. Uh, it was only applied to 
First Nation people from the 1860s to the 1970s, um, believe it or not. Um, but that was that was seen as a big problem, so the solution was ban it. And, of course, that solution was even worse than the terrible arrangements that we've got today where um, alcohol is such a problem yeah. amongst many First Nation communities mm. in, in Australia as it is in, in First Nations people in many other countries. So that's how we dealt with things. It was uh, taking a sledgehammer um, and... Uh, if you've got a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. So yep. that's what that's what we did. Problem cropped up, we would ban it. And most of those prohibitions really didn't work. And it's taken a long time to come around to the idea that uh, it's much better for everyone if we nudge people from high-risk to low-risk behaviours. And we still today have this tremendous battle between the prohibitionists and the pragmatic harm reduction people over vaping. Uh, of for our biggest, arguably our biggest drug problem, which is tobacco. Right. Mm. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the timeline, Dr. Wodak, but this would, would have been a particularly uh, novel idea at the time, this harm minimization strategy, when you know countries like the US were in full swing with the, the war on drugs. Um, what was the... the the general public sentiment towards harmonisation versus, you know, absolute criminalisation of this, these activities? Yes, Australia was way ahead of most other countries at, the time, at that time in the early 1980s in taking a pragmatic approach. And the then Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, needed a lot of persuading. Uh, he, uh, because of his personal history and family history, was... Mm. Uh, inclined to regard legal drugs and illegal drugs as very different and he got rolled in cabinet apparently uh, on that issue um, it was decided that Australia's approach to drugs would include all mood altering drugs not just the illegal ones mm -hmm. so the Prime Minister lost that battle uh, and rightly so yeah, to lose that battle. So yes, Australia was uh, at that time a leader and we've now become unfortunately a laggard uh, and that's happened a lot. Yeah, countries move backwards and forwards between acceptance and rejection of harm reduction and drug law reform. Mm. And at the moment we've had this um, um, momentous development in the United States this month where the Biden administration has officially embraced harm reduction uh, that was a phrase that um, uh, leading politicians of the United States couldn't even mouth those words, harm reduction. They had all sorts of uh, uh, other ways of expressing that thought. But they, now they're actually embracing that language, harm reduction, and also the, the philosophy behind it. What is, um, what is the semantic, uh, more than a semantic, between a harm minimisation and harm reduction? Well, that's very important, and Australia was uh, didn't tidy that area up in the Hawke years, Hawke-Keating years, and during the Howard years, uh, when John Howard was Prime Minister in 1997, harm uh, minimisation was officially defined uh, at, at that time, and we still stick to that definition, widely misunderstood. Um, but harm minimisation was defined as 
the as comprising the combination of supply reduction, demand reduction, and harm reduction, and it's a tautologous definition, unfortunately. But anyway, that's that's the definition, what? and harm reduction is is the idea that we are directly reducing the consequences of a risk behaviour, even if we're not terribly happy with that risk behaviour. Under that definition, what was um, being referred to with demand reduction? Was that supposed to be coupled with policies and the emergence of health services to support users, or was demand reduction still heavily based on uh, on the legality of it? No, demand reduction is... Uh term that's used widely internationally and it really means two things. It means that authorities will provide education information campaigns, school-based or mass-based education campaigns to reduce the demand for any particular psychoactive drugs. Uh, So that's one half of it and the other half of it is providing treatment or, or some kind of an intervention to people who have got problematic use of that psychoactive drug and wish to cut down or stop using that drug. Uh, so they're the two sides of it, drug education and drug treatment. And we, it's a very useful concept and it um, uh, does work pretty well, works better than reducing the supply of most drugs. Um, but uh, harm reduction, it, it, the effectiveness of harm reduction is often ignored, harm reduction is dramatically effective most of the time. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, the more effective harm reduction is, the more political resistance it runs into, and we see that with uh, the vaping debate, and we saw that with methadone treatment, um, that people, uh, prohibitionists, hated methadone treatment as the prohibitionists today hate vaping because it works so well. Well... Dr. Wodak, on that, so with vaping as a relatively new technology, uh, it has a lot of unknowns to my knowledge in that we're not really sure what the long-term impact on it is. And additionally, it has a lot of, of the early marketing strategies that we saw with cigarettes in that uh, flavoured vaping can be more attractive to a younger population uh, are these things concerning to you in a um, harm reduction uh, mindset or are you on the side of that it's doing more good than it is harm currently? Okay, there are a lot of myths that are propagated by people who hate vaping and you've mentioned some of them, there are many others uh, and it's important to remember that there are a lot of myths that have been used deliberately, I believe, uh, to uh, sustain rejection of previous harm reduction, uh, new harm reduction interventions, and also to delay the inevitable drug law reform. So, for example, with methadone treatment, which was methadone was in, uh, invented in Germany during World War II, and it was first called dilorphine. And so the myth was propagated that dilorphine was named after Adolf Hitler. Uh, and that myth was propagated by people who hated the idea of methadone. 
So we have a whole series of myths that have been invented by people and uh, loudly trumpeted by people who just hate vaping, mm. hate nicotine, hate big tobacco. And um, look, uh, here we are, the world is trying to vaccinate 8 billion people over COVID. Um, uh, nobody's saying, let's wait 20 years until uh, we can be sure these vaccines are safe. We're, we're trying to figure out uh, what the, the best arrangement of, um, of benefits versus inevitable negatives is in relation to the vaccines that are available and some that might even come on stream later on. So, uh, and, and these vaccines are uh, less than a year or, or two old. Um, uh, vaping's been around since 2003 and uh, became started becoming more popular after 2006-07 and then even more popular after 2010. Um, there are about 6,000 published papers about vaping every year in peer-reviewed journals. So we know a hell of a lot about vaping, in fact. It's a myth that it's a complete mystery. Uh, vaping aerosol has got about 300 chemicals, um, mostly at low concentration, some at trace concentration. Uh, cigarette smoke has got um, 7,000 chemicals uh, at high concentration, including dangerous tars uh, and uh, about 70 substances that are known to be carcinogenic. So it's nonsense to to even pretend that it's uh, that the two are equally dangerous. Mm. Um, so yes, we should embrace that. Twenty one thousand smoking related deaths a year in Australia, uh, seven to eight million smoking related deaths uh, worldwide every year. Um, it's it's a it's our number one public health problem, and at the moment, of course, the most urgent problem is uh, dealing with the COVID epidemic. But soon, we'll um, let's hope um, the COVID epidemic will be behind us, and we'll be trying to prepare for the next pandemic. But uh, smoking will again become. Dr. Wodak, I wonder if we can um, address some of the, the common claims that those who are resistant to change might make. And, you know, I guess the number one is that any effort to, you know, reduce harm is actually a proxy for encouraging use. What do we, what do we say to people who um, come, at the, come at the issue that way? Look, that issue is raised in every argument. Um, so in the Vietnam War, people who, uh, like me, said the Vietnam War was wrong and was unwinnable, uh, we were uh, accused of being agents for the Viet Cong and for the North Vietnamese government. Um, that happens all the time. So when people criticised the Iraq War, they were... Uh, assumed to be uh, supporters of Saddam Hussein. Uh, that's, that's what happens in every, every debate. It's a standard rhetorical trick. Um, but look, when you look at this uh, for a moment, step back from the hurly-burly and people like me getting accused of being shills for big tobacco, <laughs> how ridiculous that is. Yeah. Um, uh, because really, uh, it's like accusing... Elon Musk um, behind the tremendous development
Muslims in, in the United States, it's like accusing him of being a shill for uh, Big Aramco or Big yeah, Shell or right. Big uh, BP. Uh, it's, it's, it's so nonsensical. Um, a lot of the arguments that the vaping haters put up are really ludicrous. They don't stand up to any scrutiny. They're in Australia, which is the most hostile of all the high-income countries to vaping and to tobacco harm reduction, um, uh, uh, we, we are different from all the other high-income countries. We're the only high-income country that demands a prescription for the nicotine liquid used in vaping. All the other countries have more practical arrangements. Um, so uh, I see the vaping debate, deba debate in Australia as uh, following the same pattern as the methanone debate, needle syringe program debate, the drug consumption room debate. All these debates are very, very similar. And in the end, um, uh, we had some tough battles, but in the end, harm reduction won almost every one of those battles, not just in Australia, but also um, worldwide. Um, we didn't win them all, but we won most of them. What's different about the debate with vaping is that not only is it uh, a debate about harm reduction, it's also a debate about disruptive innovation. Right. So that is the, the people who make uh, Nokia phones or BlackBerry phones are trying to tell us that their product is superior to the smartphones, the um, Apple and um, Android phones. And, of course, we know what happened in that battle, and we know what's going to happen in the battle between vaping and other tobacco harm reduction options and the, the traditional combustible cigarette. Listeners, you're on uh, Radiotherapy with myself, Panel Beta, and Dr Neo, and we're talking with um, Dr Alex Wodak about... Um, Oh, a wide range of issues relating to um, drug uh, policy and uh, reform in Australia. You were mentioning the various debates there a moment ago, um, Dr. Wodak, and, and one that uh, is one of those debates that I deal a lot with um, with my students is pill testing, um, MDMA. Um, pill testing, whether that be at festivals or some other kind of uh, event. Um, and, and just by the way, you, you do happen to be on our curriculum and um, students have assignments due this weekend, of which you're part of the reading material. Um, I just wonder, where, where are we at with, um, with pill, pill testing? Um, I think the last major flurry of attention was from New South Wales and Berejelkian, is that right? Look, uh, we're very behind in that debate compared to other countries. And uh, once again, New Zealand has um, uh, adopted a very sensible approach um, much earlier than Australia, as they did with marriage equality, as they've done on First Nation issues, as they've done on many other issues, uh, unfortunately, for Australia. Good for New Zealand. Um, so New Zealand, just this month, uh, has made it now uh, a law. They've passed a law. So anyone putting on a youth music event, um, meeting certain criteria, uh, has to meet certain standards in pill testing. Uh, so uh, it, you, you won't be able to put on a youth music event in New Zealand from now on um, unless you've got some uh, pill testing arrangements that meet 
um, standard criteria. And that's where we're going to end up in Australia. But at the moment, we've got the ACT government is the only government that has uh, so far uh, in Australia has uh, stuck its neck out. And congratulations to them. Grateful thanks to them. Yeah. Um, and sooner or later, all the others will succumb. And the academic debate, the intellectual debate over pill testing is over. It's been over for a long time. Uh, and uh, that's a, a, an important development, but it's the political debate that really matters. And at the moment, the, um, the naysayers uh, have thwarted um, uh, the, uh, the inevitable acceptance uh, so far uh, of pill testing in Australia. It's going to happen. It's just it's a when question, not a weather question. I guess that leads on um, quite well to my final point, Dr. Wodak, in that uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on decriminalization of drug use versus the active legalization of drug use, such as what we're seeing in the US and Europe. And specifically, like, is there a difference between legalization of drugs such as marijuana versus legalization of something such as methamphetamine? Well... Uh... The worst form of decriminalisation is still better than the best form of prohibition. Uh, uh, in other words, I, I strongly prefer decriminalisation that is removing criminal penalties uh, from personal possession of drugs. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it's, it's the black market that's really pernicious and decriminalisation doesn't deal with the black market. And the black markets are terrible. Uh, we're never going to get rid of them completely, but reducing the size of the black market is very important. And that can really only be done by undermining it with a legal market, a legal regulated market, in other words, legalisation. And we should start with the easier drugs like cannabis, uh, and work our way around to the more difficult drugs, like you mentioned, methamphetamine. And uh, we probably will need to have at least one representative of the major drug classes available uh, for uh, legal retail sale, um, but in a regulated fashion, not by the black market, uh, and undermine the, the black market. We still have a black market for tobacco and cigarettes in Australia, quite a vigorous market. Some people say that's 20% of the total market. Wow. Um, but uh, So we still have that with cigarettes, which means to me that we're never going to get rid of the illegal market for heroin, cocaine, etc. But um, downsizing that black market is uh, should be the aim and there'll, there'll be a balance to try and find a kind of Goldilocks position uh, not too hot, not too cold uh, where we are balancing the legal market against the illegal market and trying to get the legal market to take over as much of the, the demand as we can um, never, never quite reaching the point where we take over all that demand unfortunately um, in terms of cannabis, though, um, it, uh, uh, over half a century of trying to eradicate domestic production, domestic cultivation has been clearly been an expensive failure, and we have to accept that uh, the, there will domestic cultivation will continue indefinitely. Um, 
but if uh, if a viable, attractive, affordable, high quality legal product is available that is regulated, many people, if not most, will prefer the legal uh, regulated product that they don't have to bother producing themselves than fiddling around with their own cultivation. So I think we can push, nudge the market towards the, the legal uh, regulated market. And that's where we should be going. Right. It's clear that prohibition, by and large, has failed. There have been a few successes, not many, but uh, uh, we should move and we should move as fast as we can, but we have to recognise that um, in politics, incremental change, multiple incremental changes are much more common uh, than uh, a few heroic leaps. Uh, and we see that clinically as well, that when you're dealing with people, uh, it's much better to break behaviour change down into small small uh, quantities and get people to make uh, those small jumps, so baby steps rather than huge heroic leaps. So, Dr. Wedder, we're shortly going to have to come to a close, but perhaps you've um, left us with a little bit of a teaser that you can um, wrap wrap uh, our head around, and that is where we are in the current climate. I wonder what your reading is on, say, the low-hanging fruit policy area of cannabis in relation to its potential for becoming, um, you know, even an elect part of an a, an election agenda for anyone. Are we anywhere near that? Yes, we are. We're very close to that. Uh, Mexico will this month um, legalise cannabis, recreational cannabis. Uh, Canada did that in 2018, and 17 of the 50 states of the US have done that. And this is repeating the history of what happened with alcohol prohibition in the 1920s. And when uh, Mexico and Canada kept alcohol legal and the United States prohibited alcohol in 1920, and the legal alcohol in the neighbouring countries um, pushed the United States to accept the inevitable. And, and when the US adopts uh, legal cannabis nationally, um, then I think we'll see exactly what happened with uh, marriage equality, where when the right. Netherlands accepted marriage equality in 2001, uh, then suddenly uh, it unleashed a whole string of other countries. Now, 30 countries in the world, including Australia, have uh, legalised marriage equality, and we'll see the same sort of thing. So it's a trickle at first and then a flood, and we'll see that with drug law reform as well. Well, that is an, in, indeed a, um, uh, an optimistic uh, outlook that I like to hear, and I think many of our listeners will hear, because as you've pointed out, the, the intellectual debate, you know, when you look at the science, so to speak, about um, these sorts of things is, is already well um, established. It's, it's now the, um, I guess, the sentiment of, of the electorate that's got to shift um, and get the political will to, make, um, to take leadership on it. The 2019 National Drug Strategy Household Survey, for the first time ever, uh, supporters of legalising cannabis, 41%, outnumbered opponents, 37%. So that change has already happened, and you'll see that that support will start to accelerate uh, in recent years, as it did in the United States. 12% supported legalisation of marijuana, as they call it, in the Gallup poll, 1969, it's up to 68% in 
2020 mm-hmm. in the United States now yeah. support legalization of marijuana. We'll see the same thing happen here, that there'll be a, uh, as the younger generations start replacing the older generations more and more, yeah. we'll see uh, support for cannabis law reform uh, accelerate. And then pill testing and many other things will be swept along in the, in the rush. Well, good news all around from my perspective, at least. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Um, Alex Wodak, it's been wonderful having you here on Triple R and Radiotherapy. Um, you've taken us through quite a quite a range of issues, and uh, we very much appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. For Thank you. On. Have a good okay. day. Right, bye. Bye. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Alex Wodak about all things um, drug policy uh, reform and impact on society. That was really wonderful, wasn't it, Dr. Neo? Yeah, yeah. It was a very enlightening, uh, very enlightening conversation um, and a few particularly good good quotes from, from Dr. Wodak, including <laughs> the worst form of decriminalization is, the, is better than the best form of prohibition. Yeah, yeah. Nice takeaway. Yep. Nice takeaway. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. A piece of research caught my attention um, mm. during in the month since we last saw you, um, and it's regarding drinking culture among undergraduate students, and even more specifically, um, drinking by undergraduate students in what we call O Week, or mm. for the purposes of this research, they just called Freshers Week. Mm. Um, and I was expecting just to read same old, same old re- reinforcement just by reinforcement of um, observational research that drinking still a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let's go back to the observational research. Is this personal observational research? Well, well, well during the first weeks of semester, um, it's, it's not unusual for me to be teaching students who have probably, you know... Had one or two frothings before class. You know, oh, before they, class. Well, they, you know, they're often around campus in O week and first weeks. I'm hoping this isn't a nine a.m. lecture. <laughs> Not quite like that. No, no. But you know, there's always sort of events on campus and things like that, and and um, lots of freebies, and that includes a, a little bit of the um, of the devil's mouthwash, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I take a bit of an interest in that regard, but I'd also noticed that drinking was becoming less and less prevalent among undergraduates in general. Um, I think the um, MDMA and, and, and so on and so forth are still very, very prominent, but um, drinking was going down. So I was keen to read this research, and indeed it does bring um, up a couple of issues. It seems that um, at least, at least as far as the participants in this go, um, the researchers found that yes, drinking is still a very significant um, uh, attribute of of O Week, but that attitudes are most certainly changing. Um, and the students, by way of um, introduction, it was a relatively small study, but um, and the and it's qualitative. So the the researchers were interviewing students. They basically um, established what they're calling the two dilemmas. The first dilemma being uh, that that students face. The first dilemma was wanting to drink less but being concerned about social ramifications, and the second wanting to cut down but worrying about social confidence and missing out on mm. fun. Um, so the, the research took a little bit of an, uh, an interest in that and then went to uh, further extrapolate from that that students weren't just talking about drinking less. They were starting to frame um, drinking as a binary. So mm. it was either you are a drinker or you're not a drinker. Mm. 
And they pointed to a consideration of this concept called sober curious, mm. which was referring to students who, well, hopefully that concept um, uh, speaks to itself, but it, it essentially means that students were very interested, like, how can I still um, participate and develop a social life and be accepted, et cetera, et cetera, um, and be sober? Did the uh, did the research give any indication as to why they wanted to uh, cut down on their drinking or become sober curious? Um, well, they did. Uh, there was a couple of pullout quotes from the interviews, and um, one of the one of the um, participants said they actually like the feeling of being more in control. Mm. Yeah. It's like it's counter counterintuitive from a young person's relationship with drugs, you know, in in, in a conventional mm. understanding. Um, yeah, interesting. No, it's um, certainly been something that has always uh, dominated my mind and my thought about drinking. In that, whenever I've gone through stints of not not drinking, uh, and I'd go to a social event, I'd always be asked, you know, what is the reason why you're not drinking, you know, hey, did you drive, did you, uh, have you got something on tomorrow morning, you know, what is your excuse? And there was never a, never an acceptance of just, I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't feel like it. Yeah. The, the, the cultural attributes of, of drinking um, in Australia is still, still really, um, really dominate. And in fact, aside from that, what I, what I'm, I actually think of as good news, um, what we've just been talking about, nevertheless, there's a but. <laughs> There's a but. Um, and the researchers also noted um, that there was the, the 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 weight of pressure is still with the drinkers, mm. not with the um, uh, the non-drinkers, and indeed very very little give and take. Mm. So no no compromise. As in, the drinkers want everyone to be drinkers yeah. rather than non-drinkers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so that's perhaps um, a, a little unsettling. Um, anyway, I found it found it very interesting, and um, and watch this space. I, I, yeah. I, I do sense a little bit of a cultural shift um, emerging, and it may just be a general, um, you know, society. You're right, societal or cultural shift more towards not needing uh, the amount of alcohol that used to be required, or just it not being as integral part of a social social gathering. You know, maybe it's a bit being replaced by things like, like coffee catch-ups or uh, you know outdoor activities yeah. that, that previously wouldn't um, would have required alcohol that now we just don't don't need the other the other factor of course is it's so darn expensive oh my god yes <laughs> yeah and it's very starkly different in other countries such as when you travel to Europe yeah uh, when when we're allowed to travel to Europe uh, you can go to the 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 uh, the local store and buy a two dollar two two euro bottle of wine, um, and you know I, I I'm ashamed to say this, but it's quite it's a lot better quality than what we get here. <laughs> yeah, the um the the Vinda, yes, the table wine. Yeah, yep. but it's just you know it's if and I'd I'd be I'd be interested to see what would happen if the if alcohol was cheaper and there wasn't such a big tax, you know, would it be, would these attitudes be shifting towards uh, not drinking or would it be, you know, is it, I guess this is a, a question for Dr. Wodak. We should bring him back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, oh, I think, I think there's definitely price sensitivity, you know, elastic uh, economics and all um, at play. 
but perhaps for another time. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It is coming to very near the end of the show. Just a few things to share with you before we go. And one of those is a subscriber giveaway. We've got one family pass, that's for four tickets, to see Charlie and the War Against the Grannies. Um, This is going to be at the Arts Centre in Melbourne here, of course, on Saturday the 24th of April um, at 12pm. So next Saturday, 12pm. It's not a phone-in, of course. Those are the olden days. Um, You can uh, have a chance at grabbing this by uh, getting on the Triple R website. This is for Charlie and the War Against the Granny, Saturday 24th of April, 12pm performance. You may know Alan Bro from Spicks and Specs, and uh, this is his stage show version of the book that he's written. It's a rampaging musical comedy, largely for kids five years and up. There's uh, original songs from Kit Warhurst, stunning shadow puppetry, and laughs for the whole family. So if you go to the Triple R website, rr.org.au, and enter the competition, you might just come up with a family pass of four tickets. Again, that's for Charlie and the War Against the Grannies, Saturday, 24 April, 12pm. And that's my little segue to just give one last nudge for April Amnesty. Uh, If you can at all help out with a subscription or a donation, um, now would be a wonderful time. Plenty of prizes on offer. Um, for you all Um, and again more information of that is available at rrr.org.au have i missed anything dr neo no no but i'm just looking at these these prizes and my god so there's prizes to uh like places like northside records which do uh incredible vinyl (laughs) or gravity espresso for a home brewing kit uh or even grand ridge brewery for um some of their craft beer and cider it's just like you know i, I kind of want to cancel my membership and resubscribe <laughs> do both do both <laughs> yeah and it is and and ultimately it's just a wonderful way of subscription or donations just a wonderful way to keep um genuine independent and non-commercial broadcasting exactly. alive and well it's time for us to go um hit us up uh, ladies and gentlemen on the radiotherapy socials facebook instagram or twitter um you might um uh, want a second crack at the show today yeah. and if you do you can get that on demand or via the podcast big thanks to max um, but uh, otherwise, uh, Dr. Oh, please let us know if you have any ideas for uh, for special guests as well. We're always keen to get listener engagement and that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Please do. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.